Welcome to a new podcast show about stuff. It's the the show about stuff, the Stephen Davis show. Here's you host, Stephen Davis. Welcome to the show about stuff, the Stephen Davis show. Today I'm recording a very special episode. My subject is a profile of a 5013C nonprofit organization named A Soulful Heart Memorializing George Floyd Inc. We're going to talk to its board of directors, Nan O'Brien, its treasurer, Love McCall, its secretary. We are going to talk about its mission and goals and some of the upcoming events that it is sponsoring. Welcome to all of you. How are you doing today? Terrific. Great. Okay. I'm going to start off first because we, we have somebody that's living overseas that's <laughs> on the board of a soulful heart. And we're going to start off with this person that's living. Where are you living at? Oh, usually we start off with asking about your pat, your early life. But I have to make an exception here and ask, how the hell did you get into? <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Reader's Digest version. One of my former husbands, I won't tell you which one, was German. And we used to vacation in the Canary Islands, which is like the equivalent for the Caribbean for Europeans. The easternmost of the Canaries is called Lanzarote, part of Spain, but off the western coast of Africa. And so after we split up, I moved to Paris for a year, childhood dream. And then I was visiting the island because it was really a lovely place. And by the way, who wants to live in Paris on Valentine's Day when you've just broken up? So I thought, okay, I'm going to go and have a vacation by myself for the first time. So I went in February and remembered how much I loved it. And then I went back in June and remembered how much I loved it. And then I went again in September for my birthday. And finally, I thought, okay, so I can either live in Paris and visit the island, or I could live in the island and visit Paris. That sounded like a much better deal. So I moved to the island and I lived there for five years and it's part of Spain. And then eventually I moved to the mainland actually to be a little bit more flexible in my travel, but I've been in Spain since 2014 and absolutely love it. Where I am now, I'm sitting up on a mountainside, looking down over the Mediterranean, this beautiful valley. And yet I'm only one exit away from a really good mall, very important, and 45 minutes from the airport. So it's best of both worlds. Fantastic, fantastic. Now tell me something, where did you get your entry pass to come into the world? I won't ask you how long ago, I'm just asking you where. <laughs> See, I actually don't mind that question. Um, I don't mind that question at all. I'm actually, I'm 63. I was born in Richmond, Virginia, but only because my parents happened to live there at the time. My dad worked for City Service Oil Company, so we got transferred. That used to be how they used to promote you every two or three years you would go to a new city and they happen to be in Virginia, have no connections to Virginia at all. They're actually from Pennsylvania. But then I moved around my whole life. So when people say, where are you from? I never know what to say. I've never lived anywhere more than in any one place, more than three years my whole life, other than when I lived on the island for five. Let me see, three into 63, that's a lot, lot of places. Yeah. <laughs> 
Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, Deep South, Midwest, West Coast, New York City, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Philadelphia. Paris. Yeah, the joke used to be that even when I could settle down, I was too used to moving around. And so I'm just a free spirit, but I love it. And I think it's really good to get to know a lot of kinds of different people in different places. And it's always an adventure. So I'm good with that. How was it when you were in, in grade school and in uh up to high school when you had to move so much? Interestingly, I loved it. I went to nine schools in 12, sta- in 12 years in five states in three different parts of the country. And for me, every time I went, it was new people and new adventures. And I was never really a shy person. I always enjoyed it and always stayed in touch with the people where I lived before. And I'm still friends with people from first grade. And my seventh grade English teacher and I are still good friends because she was only 10 years older than I was. And we stayed in contact all these 52 years later. But it's interesting because my sister hated it. So I think it just was more about the personality. And for me, it was always an adventure. And that's how I like it. I had a similar experience being an army brat. Right. Uh, We moved from post to post. So yeah, I could understand that. Now, when you were in high school, you, how many high schools did you go to? I was one, I went to a different school, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and 10th grade in three different states. But I was in the same state for ninth to 12th, just junior high and then high school. So that wasn't too bad. That wasn't too bad. No, that wasn't too bad. Now we have also Miss Love McCall. (laughs) And where are you make your exit at in the world? You already know, I'm going to say the birth canal. But you had to have a a dropping off point. No, not not at all. (laughs) I I was born in the South. I'm going to say the North, D.C. My family migrated a lot. My father, he was a entrepreneur. He owned a charter bus company. And so that meant I could travel all the time. And so when I wasn't traveling with my father, from whether it being him doing commercial, educational trips, entertainment, then I would be at the house with my mom. And she was also a hard worker. And my mom had three different jobs. So I grew up in the mentality of hard work and dedication. Okay. What was it like for you going to school? Where did you go to school at? Did you go, did you have to do what? Nan did and go to so many different schools or were you pretty much settled? No, I was pretty much settled from Virginia to North Carolina. My, My mother was very strict about that. She wanted to make sure that I was had that stable home setting of Monday through Friday, you're here. After school Friday, you can go and do this. But they also had a relationship with everyone in the district. So if I only went to class for two days out of the week, I was still in school because I was doing educational trips. So I, I loved it. I had the best of both worlds. Folks, that, was sound, kind of boring to me. that sounds like at this particular point, Love Junior, Juniorette <laughs> is her daughter. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's my sweetie. Um, yeah, she's just like that. She's very adamant about doing her work. But after she does her work, she's ready to travel. She's into the entertainment industry as well. And she's more of a very free-spirited individual. People just draw to her. I tell all the time she's been here before. Oh, yeah. Got, got yeah. Inside, beautiful, outside, talented, still love it. Awesome. <laughs> God had to find a way to bring me in, draw me in closer to him. 
<laughs> now, how was it for you in school? Huh, hard. But it's simple fact, my name was Love. <laughs> um, they would ask you the dumbest question. What are you going to say if a boy says I love you? Love was just my name, so I didn't see it as being any different from anybody named Susie or Harry or Tom. So I would turn around and be a little smart, Allie, and say, what are you going to do if a boy say I love you? <laughs> and then they'll look at me and say, you make me sick. And I'm like, I really don't have my mind on boys. I have my mind on getting home making some money. But I, I would imagine that I know that you came along after uh, a lot of the upheavals in North Carolina in terms of school desegregation. But yes. were there still some effect? Absolutely. Even growing up within the family itself versus my mother's side of the family versus my father's side, because my mother's side of the family is biracial. And I was one of the darker ones of my grandmother and grandfather's grandchildren. So I received a different treatment from the rest of them. Mm -hmm. So racism has existed all my life. It wasn't until I started coming into my own and being mentored by Dr. H.D. Flowers and Dr. Maya Angelou that I was able to start to understand how to handle it. And then being a part of a relationship mentoring, mentored by John Singleton, how to take my talents and let out that frustration. Okay, now what, what high school did you go to? Give it up. Yeah, I'm letting you both give a shout out to your high school. What was your high school, love? I really got to give a shout out to the high school? No, <laughs> it was it was actually Hereford County High School. Okay. I had the pleasure of having some great teachers. However, like I will say, I was basically popular because of my family status quo. And on top of that, my name and being a involved in different extracurricular activities. However, I didn't see myself as a popular girl. Mm -hmm. I didn't look at myself as being fortunate because when them little rascals were asleep, my mom and dad had me up at two o'clock in the morning working. So <laughs> I was working before I went to school. So I didn't see it as being fortunate. I saw it as my mother and father training. If you work hard, then you can have something in life. Mm-hmm. What, 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 and what was your school, Nan? Tulsa Memorial Chargers in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I have to say, there was a lot of racism connected to that school, too. When I was going to be a sophomore, there was needing to be forced integration because our school did not comply. And because uh, it was all white in Tulsa, as you may have heard over the years, was very divided downtown was the line. North Tulsa was black, South Tulsa was white, and the two never crossed. And so the courts came in and said, if you do not voluntarily integrate, we're going to have busing. And I can remember thinking, why don't we just all get along? Why don't we just have everybody everywhere? It never made sense to me then any more than it does now. And so we had, I think, five students from the Washington High School, the Black High School, come to ours, and that satisfied integration. And about the same from our school went to Washington. And it was all this big faldy roll, and it was horrifying to me, horrifying. Now, now, can you imagine that all these years later, you have we have two people working together 
that was from Tulsa? I know, right? Market Bushware was from Tulsa. Yeah. So like, you, you never know. Things changed. They have changed over the years, and they will continue to evolve. Now, where did you go to college at, Nan? Oklahoma State. Oh, wow. I to, but I, I will say it was not really by choice. I always wanted to act and write, mm-hmm. and my folks were afraid of that world. And it's not that they didn't believe in me, as they told me later, it's that they were afraid I would be successful. And they were afraid of all the other things that went along with that, the whole Me Too, if that makes sense, the casting couch. They were very not in that world. And so it's not that they discouraged me, they just didn't encourage me. And so they said, oh, you should go to state school. I'm like, okay, I'll go to OU. They have a big performing. And they're like, no, you go to OSU where your sister went. No performing at all. Yeah, it was more perfunctory than it was anything else. Uh, Not where I I got good grades because school came easy to me. I was very fortunate in that way. But in education, because I love kids, but my heart wasn't in it. So, but what was your 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 major? Which semester? No. (laughs) What you got your degree in? (laughs) Honestly, like I went back and forth like every semester. It's like, what do I want to do this time? I went between business and education, ended up in elementary education. But honestly, it really wasn't till later years I went back to school and got a a paralegal degree and law interested me. But at that point, I was always already a single mom of three kids and law school was not an option, but I, I got to do law for quite a lot of years and that mattered to me, but, but still the writing was always there and the performing was always there. And so it came full circle. Where did you go? I attended Elizabeth City State University for my BA and BS degree. Actually, I have a BS degree in pre-med thanks to my mom. I only did it because mom said I had to. <laughs> My BA degree was in English and communication and minored in theatrical arts. And my mom only agreed to that after the passing of my grandmother because I completely shut down and stopped talking. And that was not something she was used to. And so she picked up my journal after my grandmother's funeral. And I had written a short story called Violence in the Home. And after she read the short story, she looked at me and she said, okay, you can go and double major. I'm not at the time realizing I was doing that more so for her than myself. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until later in years that I learned that was her desire. And she was trying to live through me. Going forth and building my relationship with Dr. H.D. Flowers, who was the grandson of Baretha Flowers. Miss Baretha Flowers was the teacher in I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings to Dr. Maya Angelou who got her to start speaking after the rape. They were best friends and he shared my journal with her. And so we had the pleasure, and that would be another episode on how that that introduction went. We had the pleasure of meeting. She took me up under her wing as well and gave me a scholarship to go for my master's at North Carolina A&T. So I attended North Carolina A&T uh, along with leaving North Carolina A&T, finishing up there, I went to Howard University. And in the middle of doing the summers, I did the School of the Arts in Harlem and the School of the Arts in North Carolina, having the pleasure to work with Tupac, Erica Badu, and Jada Pickett. But my oh. mother still told me 
no, you're not doing entertainment. <laughs> so I have to be honest, I was naive. And I'd say, okay, mom. And as soon as I got in that car, I was hitting every club, <laughs> introduced to every promoter. And I wanted part about it. It was one of her business um, partners that introduced me to the clubs because he was fascinated by the way I danced. And I started sharing my writings with him. And he said, girl, you have something. I'm going to help you. We just can't tell your mama. His name was Larry White. He introduced me to all those club promoters and I learned how to finagle. And that was the end of that. Oh no, I was born. A <laughs> that was just conferred on her. Yeah. <laughs> I was born a hustler. That can't, that's a bloodline. That's a system <laughs> bloodline. And both of my, my parents, I get more of the street smarts from my father, more so than my mother. I get more of my intelligence from my mother. So then I combine that with the common sense and they tell me I'm a package deal. You'll be okay in life. <laughs> yeah. T tell me something about your father. What did your father do besides having a, a charter bus service? Um, the good thing about having a charter bus service was he actually was on the road a lot and he was the driver for James Brown. And so I was able to hear some of those type of conversations and get some of those stories of the James Brown and the Michael Jackson and the Prince and how Prince refused to do this with Michael and even down to Roy C. And my aunt was dating Roy C and I didn't believe it. So I'm at my grandmother's house and wow, it's Roy C sitting in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> but my father, he was also a jack of all trades. There was, he was very good with his hands. There was nothing my dad could do, but he was always so very smooth and savvy about it. Women just threw themselves at him. He had that suave like Neo, uh, but he also had the attitude of Denzel. So if you mix those two together, oh my gosh, he was a beast. But imagine being his daughter. And my siblings will say, I'm the favorite. I don't see that. I try not to see it. Although I know I'm the one that he clings to. So he would always put in more time with me because I would take the time. I wouldn't just sit there and be like, daddy, can I have this and run? No, I actually wanted to know how he was feeling, why he was laying the bricks the way he was laying the bricks. Why is he sitting up here? Every time he goes somewhere, he got on a suit. And he'll always tell me, live my name, because he was the one that named me. And I was like, why did you name me that? Because all I did was get in so many disagreements in school, had to fight in the neighborhood because girls don't like you. They think they'll want to go with you. And that's just your name. Your name is just love. And then growing up, it was even harder because when you're talking to a gentleman in handling business and they write love and a phone number, then they have their significant others and they call and you're like, who are you? And I'm like, <laughs> but then I have to explain. Sometimes I'm taking a picture of my ID to show it to people like, look, I'm not having an affair with your husband. This is really my name. And then they draw to me, like they start loving me and I'm like, oh gosh, dad, why? And he was like, you know why I named you love? And I said, why? He said, because God is love.
He said, that's the, his favorite word in the Bible. He said, as long as you live your name, you'll be okay. He said, because we got to do something to help the youth. We got to help our people. And it's ironic now that we're part of this organization and I'm able to sit and talk to him about things that we're doing, the positive goals that we have going forward. And I can see him smile and say, I'm proud of you. I told you you was going to be doing something like that. And I'm like, okay, but I still want my, I still want my Tony. I still want my Tammy. <laughs> and he was like, in time, you'll get all that. But right now, just slow it down. Just slow it down. You, you need to do this. He didn't say slow your roll, did he? <laughs> nah, tell me. He will get, he will always say, you walk too fast. You walk too fast. Slow down. So his motto was, you go fast, you won't last. You go slow, you can go some more. He was like, if you use that motto every day in life, you're going to be okay. So I, I really do take that motto because sometimes when you do go too fast, you are going to miss something. But if you just take your time, digest, and go slow about it, you can digest things a whole lot better. That's right. When are you going to do that? I'm sorry. I've known you. I don't know you ever, maybe you're slow is everybody else's fast on, but I don't think that you ever go slowly at all. <laughs> now, how, tell me about your father, Nan. My dad was a sweetheart. He was very different than Love's dad to the extent that he was very much a company man. He wanted stability in his life, but he grew up in an orphanage. His dad died when he was seven, his mom when he was 10. So from seven to 17, he was in a boy's home in Philadelphia. He learned a trade, learned diesel mechanics, but he uh, then went into the Navy at 17, served in the Pacific, was at Iwo Jima on day two of the land invasion, and was on beach patrol picking up the Navy personnel who were being shot. Somehow managed to survive that. Used to tell the story, he was at the base of Mount Sarabachi when they were raising the flag, and the Marines called down and said, hey, all you mm -mm, CBs, get up here and help us. And they're like, yeah, do it yourself. We're not doing anything never knowing that was going to be a famous uh, moment. But when he got out, he went to school in the GI Bill, Penn State, and got a finance degree. And because his life had been unsettled and didn't have family, it was everything to him. And he always said that his life began when he met my mother. And they were married almost 48 years when she passed away young from breast cancer, the only woman he ever loved. And so every time we moved, even though it was a new place, I was raised on home is wherever your family is. So it didn't matter what city or what town or what home, as long as we had our family, that's all we needed. And so to me, there was stability from that sense. I was very fortunate. I had emotional stability my whole life and he provided, but my dad was also a writer. And I think that's where I got my writing talent. And he sang his way through college in the Poconos. And I think that's probably where the musical talent came. Dirty dancing? <laughs> it actually sounded like Frank Sinatra when he sang. He did. A very similar voice. And uh, But I think that he made a choice to not go the creative way, but to go the stability way. So he was both right brain and left brain. He was good at business. He worked hard. He worked his way up in the company. But I think for me, I was always do your best. And whatever that is, do your best. And that was instilled. But I have to say, I was always the different one in my family. They didn't quite understand me. I had one older sister who was a school teacher, married to her high school sweetheart, total normal life. And, and they identified, I think, more with her than with me. They just shook their head and said, you know, 
That's great. Good luck. There's always one, right? And I can say that because I'm that child in my family. But, But we were all very close, even though we were different. But the thing that was the same was the love of family. And I have four kids now, four grandkids, and they're all different too. But it's that same sense of family that is the thing that draws us together. And it's kind of funny. I think my kids are more on the end of the spectrum other than one daughter of my parents, because I'm still moving all over. I'm still doing a lot of things. And they're saying, like my father did, slow down. My dad said it too, love. I was laughing. But the only only thing about that was when my dad was older, he was on a walker, had dementia, and he was in an assisted living home for a few months. And he would race through the hallways on that walker. And I got to say, daddy, slow down. (laughs) But I... I don't think I'll ever slow down. I live my work. I love my work. I love the work that we're doing together. And I love that it's always different. Mm-hmm. I think that's what keeps you young. And I think one thing that helped me with when it comes to things that my father taught me was he taught me not to depend on a man, any man, woman or a man. But yeah. he also taught me think like a woman and act like a man versus sight, no. You think just a man can think. You have to be able to get into their mentality. And the reason why he would tell me that was the simple fact and being, if you're gonna be in any type of relationship, whether it be marriage or business, you have to know how a man thinks different than a woman. So how how are you? Any type of relationship, with any man if you don't know how they think if they think and at some point you have to be sympathetic to them but even be even harder when it comes to women because the the woman is normally known to be submissive and I won't be doing that and he was like that's what I don't want you to do because I don't want you to be to the point where you bow down to people I want you to be the one that's strong and you stand up tall. And even at your weakest point in life, you're stronger than you think. You're that eagle. I had no idea what he was talking about when he was talking about the eagle. Now, <laughs> now I, I truly get it. And I'm able to have different relationships with different individuals. And I don't know if I have a whole lot of enemies out there. If I do, oh, I still love you. But I, I have more relationships with individuals that are loving and kind, and I love helping people. And that's what my mother and father has always been about. Even to my family, it's my mother, my father, that was the patriarch and matriarch of their families. Even when it came to my grandparents, looked at them as mom and dad. So I appreciate both my mother and my father. I feel like I have the best mom in the entire world. I know a lot of things she did not want me to do, especially when it comes to entertainment. And she looks at me now like, you fool, you did it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you was going to try to do something like this, but I didn't think you were going to pull it off. And I (laughs) said, if when you got the talent in you and it just keeps nagging at you and nagging at you because she has this crazy notion, she thinks I'm a little bipolar. Because I told her I'm going to be the illegitimate black daughter to Victor Noman. I'm going to get there. I'm going to guess, and my mother's going to be Mamie. <laughs> my mother's going to be Mamie. And I told her, I said, mom's going to happen in such a way 
I'm not even going to realize it. Not having God was going to divert me some and I would be a part of a social injustice nonprofit organization that's impacting the world. When it came to the, the death of George that day, I, I couldn't bear to look at what was happening during that time. But I had this strong sensation on the inside. I knew I was going to be a part of something, but I didn't know it was going to be something momentous. It's what we're doing together. And Stephen Davis, you are my other dad now. So you stuck <laughs> with me for life. I love you. I appreciate you. You're also a wonderful mentor. And then you are my Oprah and I'm Gail. So yeah, Oprah and Gail, watch out because we coming for you. Well, usually I, I ask a whole lot more in terms of personal questions and uh, as your careers go. And we can save some of that for later on because we want to do this again. I want to more so now begin to focus on the purpose of this particular video is to talk about that organization that you um, mentioned earlier, A Soulful Heart Memorializing George Floyd Jr. <laughs> and for those of you who are out there, the website for this organization is www.asoulfulheart.org, O-R-G. Now, how did this organization come to be? We know why, because it has to do with George Floyd and the death of George Floyd. But how did it come about? Love? So for Heart, memorializing George Floyd came about through the patriotic uncle, Selwyn Jones of George Floyd, the infamous Stephen Davis, and myself, Love McCall. We joined forces and co-founded this nonprofit organization to challenge the world of uniting all people, depleting violence, decreasing poverty, increasing education, and learning to love one another. Those and are lofty so goals. I was going to say, <laughs> no pressure. In building the board, we were blessed to have Nan O'Brien, who is also a co-author with Selwyn Jones on a book that will be coming out. And I'll let her give the details on that shortly. Discussing racism. And we have Barbara Charles, who sits on the NAACP board, state and national. And also we're blessed to have a wonderful executive director by the name of Liz Reed. Elizabeth Reed, but she loves Liz Reed. And what's iconic about Liz Reed is she actually used to be a part of Turning Point. And Minneapolis is important and historical because of the death of George Floyd, because of the fact that George decided to go and be a part of their drug rehabilitation program there. And Liz was able to build a motherly one-on-one -on -one relationship with George. And so having her intimate details and interpersonal feelings and 
conversations with George is something that none of us will ever have, except for Selwyn, but not in a motherly way. His would be more in a fatherly, uncle, big brother way. So to have that along with the other board members that we're blessed to have and volunteers, we're just gonna do momentous things forever. And I tell Stephen Davis right now while I'm looking at his face, I may go before him, but as long as I have breath in me, this nonprofit, your name will forever live. Because like I've told you before, you are the imprint behind this magnificent organization. Thank you, thank you. And Nan, talk to us about your collaboration with Selwyn Jones and the book that's coming out. Wow. And it's been an amazing ride. I never could have imagined when I met you and Love and Selwyn last fall that I would be where I am today <laughs> in terms of not only the book, but the organization. I have made my living as a writer for more than three decades. I'm published and I, my business partner, Frank Wheaton and I, Frank is a, an attorney in at LA, entertainment sports attorney, very well known, sweet man. One of the best. He's great. Frank is great. He's like a brother to me. And we keep it all family. He introduced me to all of you because apparently you were looking for a writer to write Selwyn's story. And it's not just about, hi, I'm a relative of the Floyd family. So I want to exploit that and tell my story. And I had some concerns about that from the beginning because I knew that this was about Selwyn and that we needed to make sure that it really was about not only his relationship with George, which was very close, but the impact that George's death had on his life overall, because it literally changed his life and made him decide to commit his life to social justice concerns and to take the reins as the patriarch of the family to make sure that not only was George's name never forgotten, but that something good could come from something so horrific. So that's where we started. When we continued to work together, we soon realized that there was more to this story than Selwyn's story, that there really was a lot of information out there and an audience that we had the opportunity to speak to as a team of a black man and a white woman coming together from two different perspectives to speak to racism in America. We had to have that uncomfortable conversation with our audience. And we believe strongly that when we bring that conversation and talk about the things that people don't wanna talk about, that it's necessary because you can't fix what you don't acknowledge is broken. And there's a lot of brokenness out there from a lack of knowledge, a lack of information. And I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but just flat out ignorance because these issues don't touch people. If something this big doesn't touch your life personally, then there's no motivation to fix it. So the book evolved and now it ended up being a book that we are calling The Silent Civil War, How the Murder of My Nephew George Exposed the Hidden Racism in America because that's exactly what happened. When we saw the responses in the Black Lives Matter protests and the divisiveness in this country, we realized that we really had two sides that were more deeply entrenched than many of us may have realized. But within acknowledging that and recognizing it, we then have the opportunity for healing. We have to communicate. We have to 
talk about the things that are difficult. And so that was where the book ended up. So it was interesting. We're going to have uh, anecdotes of someone's life, certainly, and his life with George and George's life and where they came from. But there's a bigger picture to that. So through using personal information about him and George and the families and where they came from, we then extrapolate that into the bigger picture. I'm really excited about it as well, because at the end of the book, we're going to have an appendix, well, several appendices actually. One is going to be a resource because we don't wanna just talk about what people can do better. We want to sell, tell them where they can go. So any organizations that are trying to promote social justice, that are supportive of this, what essentially is a second civil rights movement, we can list them, we can explain what they do, we can have contact information. And if anybody's watching this and wants to send their organization to us for consideration for inclusion of the book, I would welcome that. The second appendices is going to contain names of people who have been murdered because of the color of their skin. We want to give the opportunity to have a platform for those families to be honored and for them to see that we respect them, that we stand with them, that our hearts are with them so that other people can pay homage to them. And again, anyone who wants to share their stories with us, we would be happy to do that. Third, we're going to actually include a survey on racism in America, where we want to really have one of the largest surveys of racial attitudes in America that's ever been done, not some sampling of 100 people and then supposedly that's what the whole country feels. No, we want people to read this book and we wanna see, have we made a difference and what conversations can we have? And so all of those appendices will be accessed through QR codes so they'll be updated. It's not just gonna be static and in a book and it grows stale. So overall, we're just trying to bring this attention, bring this conversation to the public and then show how we can do something about it. From that, I was invited to be a part of A Soulful Heart which really meant the world to me and to serve on the executive board with Stephen and you love and what has been amazing and to be a part of what well, I know we're going to be talking about the first annual George Floyd Memorial concert coming up in two weeks is also been just an amazing experience. So collectively, I think just bringing all of this information together under one umbrella is going to make a difference. And I like love feel like everything in my life. And I've said this to her, I'm going to get emotional has brought me to this point. It has. That's great. That's great. You you mentioned a, a particular event that's coming up, but it's going to be more than just one event. It seems like it's going to be a whole a number of days, and it's just part of the George Floyd family tour. Talk about that, love. Uh, give, give us some feeling of what's going to happen that weekend. Sure. On the 21st, we're going to be having a social and equality social justice summit, and we'll have different speakers and coming out to speak on behalf of the social injustice that this world is enduring at this time, along with some special guests. We're going to be blessed to be a part of the congregation of Brown Memorial with the Church of God in Christ on that Sunday with the congregation. And we have different bishops and pastors 
coming in to fellowship along with the George Floyd family and other social injustice families that will be there. For example, we're going to have Tamir Rice and Quantez Lamar Burks, along with Jamal Sutherland's family. They're going to be in attendance to support us as well. After that, we're going to have a big reception. Please contact us if you would like to be a part and participate. Mm, you're going to get everybody in the world. Are they going to do it to your phone? Our website. They can contact us over the website. Oh, okay. We're also going to be blessed to be a part of the, and this is what also really intrigues me, to be a part of the uh, Repertory School of Theatrical Art with the students where Selwyn Jones is going to be doing a Q&A session with the students, and the students are going to put on a performance and dedication of George Floyd to Selwyn Jones. That's very sentimental to me because the youth are our future. I am a big Whitney Houston fan besides Tina Turner. And one of my very first songs that I won my very first trophy on was performing Greatest Love of All. My dad made me learn every word to that song. <laughs> and still to this day, I believe in the concept of our youth. However, in saying that, at some point, we still have to remember the youth gets older. So we can't forget our senior citizens as well. And then the extravagant May 24th event at the Town Hall in Manhattan, New York, where we're going to have First Lady Karen Clark Shear performing, along with Pastor Kim Burrell, Jessica Reedy, the legendary Melba Moore, Riff, which includes A.B. Money, J.R., and the extraordinary producer, Easy Moby, along with Tanisha Torsett. Um, Marcus, the Marcus is going to be in the house. We're going to have Rugrat War Story, along with a lot of other hosts of performers, including the Repertory School of the Arts, and a Freedom School of Harlem. In addition to that, we're gonna have two amazing hosts, which are Jeffrey Owens. And I never thought I'd get to the point where I was gonna really get to Alvin, because I, I was trying to get to Sabrina for a while on that Cosby show to tell her he's gonna be my husband because he's just so laid back. I have to worry about my husband that one. So I, now he's got a little older on me and now I've got a little more mature and he's done elevated and been blessed to be a part of Tyler Perry movies and sitcoms and now with 50 Cent with Ghosts and Power and he's going to be gracing our stage and I'm telling you right now Mr. Davis I'm going to hold the man hand I know you married so, <laughs> Wife on the other side, but I just gotta tell you, I'm your wife. I was your wife on TV. <laughs> Magnificent Terry Woods. Terry Wood is she's just a prolific African American. She wrote True to the Game and Duchess, and the movie Sword. She was the one that was able to get the inmates inside the prisons to stop the fighting and pick up the books and start reading. And now they're seeking college degrees. So kudos to you, my sister. And we also have some other special guests that's gonna be in the house like Big Daddy Kane, Mike Tyson, 
And if you want to know about anybody else, then you just need to go buy the ticket and come and see all of us because we're going to have a slamming time with the George Floyd family along with other social injustice families. So let's just make this a community affair and just show George all the love we can up from the heavens. Wasn't there someone else that, that was scheduled to, to be on also with interesting name? They, the Jaggernaut? Yes, the Jaggernaut War Party. Yeah, yeah. What is so amazing about these young men, they're so freaking talented from pop to rock to funk to hip hop to rap. They have been on American Idol. They have been a part of Disney, Netflix, FX. They are extraordinary. And their goal is, because the band is so good, to get the mayor's attention to become the band of New York. So... Mayor Adams, get ready because Sofa Hard is rooting for them. And Mayor Adams will be there. <laughs> and I'm going to take right now, Mayor Adams, I have a rule. Don't discriminate. I do not accept no. <laughs> no one says no to love. It seems like it's going to be a wonderful time. And I'm especially looking forward to the, econ the I keep saying economic, but the Equality and Social Justice Summit because it puts into context uh, what we are all about. <clears throat> yes, there's entertainment part, but there is some serious dialogue in terms of how we not only identify different problems, because most of the time we know what most of the problems are. It's the solutions to the problems but more importantly, it is the monitoring after you have decided what solutions you should try to, to, in terms of alleviating the problem. The monitoring usually falls to the wayside or it's not even discussed because we spent so much time talking about the problem. Part of our mantra is that the, it, the end game is always solutions and monitoring. <clears throat> Correct. That, that helps you. I think it's important too that I want to point out again that all of the funds that we raise from this amazing time will be used to further the goals of a soulful heart. And we have some pretty ambitious goals, obviously. So short-term programs in the schools from the elementary all the way through the university level on social justice and uh, civil rights. We wanna make sure that we include the children, but all the way through on that, we wanna go into the communities and be a resource for them because a lot of times there's problems, but people don't know where to go or who do we turn to? Who can we go to? So we wanna bring those tools and that res those resources into the communities. And long, we also wanna provide scholarships for young people who are pursuing professions to try and further this because we wanna encourage people to go into those areas to make a difference and long-term. And I am so excited about this. We want to establish the George Floyd Center for Social Justice in Washington, DC. And our vision is that the Floyd Center, as we hope it will be called, will be an international center for social justice. It will have theater, conference rooms, the executive offices, library, and it will permanently house George Floyd Traveling Museum so that the museum has a home so it can be a resource. Additionally, we want to have a memorial garden and in that garden, a memorial wall where we will have the names of those who have lost their lives because of the color of their skin engraved forever where people can go and reflect and sit and just share in a very peaceful environment, a respectful environment. 
So that's a big goal and it's the long-term goal, but that's legacy. And for me, I think that everything that we do ultimately leads to that path and that, that place so that after we're all gone and that day will come, that there's something permanent that will make a difference and that our legacy will continue. Great. I, I, I thank you all so much for being on the broadcast on this time. We got to do this again because we got a whole lot more to talk about, but um, it's such a pleasure to be associated with you two young folk. I be a real sister here. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do thank you all so much for it. And that's it for the show about stuff. The Stephen Davis Show. Join us next week for another episode. Bye. Thank you for tuning in this week. Hope you enjoyed this show about stuff. See you next time.